Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Our speaker for this evening is our own founding executive director of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Father Hezekiah Carnazzo graduated from Christendom College in 2004 and completed a master's degree in systematic theology with an advanced apostolic catechetical diploma at Christendom's Graduate School. In 2009, Father Hezekiah founded the Institute of Catholic Culture and has since served as its executive director. Ordained to the priesthood in 2016, he also serves as the director of the Office of Catechesis and Evangelization for the Melkite Greek Catholic Eparchy of Newton. Father Hezekiah's lecture throughout the U.S. is a regular guest on the Sunrise Morning Show and has appeared on EWTN's Sunday Night Live and Marcus Grody's Coming Home Network. He serves as the pastor of St. George Melkite Greek Catholic Church in Sacramento, California, where he lives with his wife, Linda, and their seven children. Please help me welcome Father Hezekiah. Father, would you mind opening in prayer for us? Sure. Thank you, Katie. Thank you all of you for, uh, for being here. Let's begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Pascha, Pascha, and again I say Pascha for Christ, our Pascha has been sacrificed for us. He alone is immortal. He alone cannot be seen or grasped. The angels and principalities, the authorities, dominions and powers, and the cherubim and seraphim praise him. With these heavenly powers, we, your unworthy servants, praise, bless, and worship you, O Lord our God. For in these last days you came into the world, took flesh from our holy and pure lady, the mother of God and ever-Virgin Mary, and suffered crucifixion that you might free us from the curse of the tree. For all of this, how can we repay you, O God, according to nature, and Father, according to grace? We offer you praise from our lips. Glory to you who were baptized, glory to you who were crucified, glory to you who were buried, glory to you who are risen and raise us with you, glory to you together with your eternal Father and your all-holy gracious and life-giving spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is risen. And you say, indeed, he is risen. He is indeed. risen. Christ is risen. Indeed, it's a blessing to be back together as an ICC family here. Welcome, Father Andrew, Sister Angela, Marie, uh, Father Theodore. Thank you for joining us. Good to have everybody join together here again. I'm pretty excited. Hope you're excited to be here. We've been through a lot together over the last couple of weeks. I want you to know that you've been in my heart. I hope that you've kept uh, me, my family, my parish, and our whole ICC family in your prayers as we have entered into these holy days and beheld the greatest mystery um, of, our, of our faith, of our life, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it is only fitting that we come together as a family to reflect upon 
our topic tonight, apostolic Christianity, regaining a Catholic vision of the church as the church always draws us back in these days to the, uh, the, the story of the early church, the reading from the Acts of the Apostles. And it's from this vantage point, from this, from this foundation that we're going to tackle our subject tonight. As I was saying to my, my, my parishioners this past Sunday in my homily, I said the church places before us at this time, at this, in this season, always the early church as a, as a um, what do you want to call it, a measuring stick, if you will, right? By which we can always reflect back and say, how are we living in accord with the life of the church which Christ has given us, and where our communities fall short, then we're called to grow. And I hope that's exactly what we do tonight together, is grow in our uh, understanding of the faith and our understanding of the nature of the church, and our love for the Lord, and therefore our love for one another. I'm going to give a caveat right here at the beginning, um, that I have discussed this topic, I've presented on this topic in various forms, not exactly as I'm going to tonight, but in various forms over the years to various groups of people. And I have received very different reactions to what I'm going to share with you this evening. Okay. I have had both people in, in groups in, in having tears of joy, but I've also received many glares of anger um, and frustration as I'm sure father Theodore, father Andrew, you know, in our homilies, we often, we're trying to communicate something, but we are human beings, right? We're weak. And so our, our ability to communicate falls short. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so I'm going to ask everybody just here at the beginning to calm, just have a spirit of calmness. And I realize that might come as rather strange coming from father Hezekiah. but, uh, yeah, I know it's funny for me to say, calm down, but we're going to calm down a little bit because it's not easy to grow. Okay. When we grow, we usually have growing pains that come along with that growth. But if we allow the Lord to open our hearts and minds and form us according to the traditions of the church, then we certainly will grow. And that doesn't mean it's not going to be a little bit painful. Uh, certainly today, Catholic traditionalists, of which I would say the majority of us here are. Um, and by the way, I say just a, a little word to our Protestant brothers and sisters that are joining us this evening. I'm so glad you're here. Um, those that will watch this program over the years to come, welcome. We only seek to fulfill Christ's desire that we all be one. And the church is here, I should say the Institute of Catholic Culture is here, um, as the church is, to bring about that will of God, the unity of mankind. And so if you have questions, disagreements, whatever, I'm always available to you at the Institute of Catholic Culture. You're always welcome to email me. You're always welcome to call my cell phone. My cell phone is 703-504-8733. You can write that down, 703-504-8733. And uh, happy to continue to discuss this. And where there's points of protest among Protestant brothers and sisters, let's resolve them. And they're only be resolved if we communicate, if we talk with one another. All right. But for our the, the, the majority of Institute of Catholic Culture members of here who are very serious about the faith, um, of which I hopefully count myself one, we have a certain defensive mindset, uh, I think, because of modern problems in the church. We hear the words diversity and things like that, or we see differences within the church, and we react. We want to protect what we have, and this is certainly good and laudable, um, but in our act of protecting, it's important that we understand what exactly we are protecting um, and to ensure that we are doing so properly and that it is prepared for the evangelical mission of the church. So with that caveat, telling you guys, 
you know, if I say things that kind of raise your eyebrows or we say, well, wait a minute, just calm down a little bit. Because every quotation I have or everything I say will be backed up by the church's own teaching tonight. Okay. And it may be something you haven't heard before, but nevertheless, I think we can grow together. So with that, we need to start at a basic level. So the first, you know, a couple of minutes of my talk here, we start very basic and ensure that we are all in the same and we have our terms defined. We're all on the same foundation. Um, that we understand the subject that is before us. And it's only then, when we have the subject clearly before us, that, that we will be able to begin to investigate it, to, to appreciate it, and to meditate upon it. Our subject, of course, is the church. Um, the word church, literally defined as gathering or assembly. Simply, simply put, of course, we're talking about a particular kind of, it's not just any old gathering or assembly, but a particular assembly, which I'm going to talk about here over the next couple of minutes. I certainly don't think I need to say that the subject of the church is quite misunderstood today because it is misunderstood. It is ultimately not appreciated and loved, but rather it is often used or it becomes a tool in the hands of those who would ultimately abuse it. So let's begin here by understanding the church as she understands herself by sharing with you a quotation that is quite challenging. So again, asking people if this quotation is offensive to you, it's not Father Hezekiah saying it. It's St. Cyprian of Carthage, who gives us the famous statement, extra ecclesium nola salus. Outside the church, there is no salvation. Now, I gave a talk, or actually I think it's a two or three part talk on this subject at the ICC. You can go look it up if you want to dive further into it. But uh, for the sake of time, I will just say that, that this, this statement, at least on its, its surface, may seem rather exclusive and therefore may be rejected by many. It is rejected by many. I, I remember when I first gave that series of talks at the ICC, I had no end of phone calls and emails beforehand from priests and lady alike. What are you going to say, Father? And I said, what do you mean what I'm going to say? I'm going to say what the church says. Is in the catechism of the Catholic Church, the quotation from St. Cyprian of Carthage. So this isn't some old-timey kind of Father Hezekiah thing being dug up. No, it's part of our patrimony. Outside the church, there is no salvation. And there are some even within the church that would reject this because they would like to see the church be more inclusive or open to the tides of time. And so it's necessary that we define exactly what we believe the church to be such that we can receive the teachings of St. Cyprian and the fathers of the church, the patrimony of the church as they were intended. And to do this, to help us grasp the nature of the church, I turn to one of my favorite quotations I've shared with many of our ICC family members before, but so that we're all on the same page, I'm going to share it again. And it's sent from St. Porf Porfirios, who says a rather mind-blowing statement. He says this, the church is without beginning, it is without end, and it is eternal. Just as the triune God, her founder, is without beginning, without end, and eternal. She is uncreated just as God is uncreated. She existed before the ages, before the angels, before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world, as the Apostle Paul says. She is a divine institution. And in her dwells the whole fullness of divinity. She is an expression of the richly varied wisdom of God. She is the mystery of mysteries. She was concealed and was revealed in the last times. The church remains unshaken 
because she is rooted in the love and wise providence of God. The three persons of the Holy Trinity constitute the eternal church. The three persons of the Holy Trinity constitute the eternal church. And risking sounding like a broken record, because I know that I repeated myself on this point many times here at the Institute, I simply remind you that we, mankind, is made in the image and likeness of God. God, who has lived a life of loving communion, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. And Father Stephen Freeman, friend of mine, says, the church is the fulfillment of God's eternal purposes, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ Jesus. It is the place of union between heaven and earth, our union with God. It is our our common life with God that is referenced when we say church. And how do we enter into this communion? How are we made members of this communion with God? How are we made members of this assembly, this church? Well, of course, through holy baptism. For Jesus says in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, unless one is born again of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Open your Bibles with me very quickly here. Romans chapter six, here we go. All right, this is the passage in the Byzantine tradition. This is the passage which is always uh, proclaimed at, at, at every single baptism, yeah? Romans chapter six. We'll start with, uh, with verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know, and here's the key part, right? Verse, verse three. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. Of course, the newness of life is the life of the resurrection. Yes, it is given to us, it is revealed to us in this feast of, as Peter said, the feast of feasts. Because it's a great mystery of the resurrection, the great mystery of Pascha, the great mystery of Easter is not that God rose from the dead. He's God. The great mystery is that he walked our human nature out of the tomb. But notice what St. Paul says here. Notice what St. Paul says. He doesn't say that we are baptized like Jesus. I ask people, why are we baptized? Well, because Jesus was baptized. Well, no, that's not enough. We're baptized. When we are baptized, we are baptized. The word baptized comes from the Greek word baptizane which means to plunge into. That's what St. Paul says. He's right there, verse three. Do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus, into, not like, but into, made one with him, grafted into him. And of course, if we are in Christ, then we are placed into a relationship with our heavenly father and his all Holy Spirit. And it is into this, into this reality into this relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we are plunged. It's for this reason that Jesus can say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For where Jesus is, there is the communion of the Holy Trinity. St. Augustine says, let us rejoice then and give thanks that we have become not only Christians, but Christ himself. And in this relationship with God, in this eternal communion, 
we discover another relationship, a relationship with my brother who is also baptized into Christ and has the Holy Spirit dwelling within him. Thus, we can say that through our baptism, the church on earth is formed of all of those who have been made one with God. Pope Benedict says, union with Christ is also union with all those to whom he gives himself. I cannot possess Christ just for myself. I, can't, I can belong to him only in union with all those who have become or will become his own. Communion draws me out of myself towards him, and thus also towards unity with all Christians. We become one body, completely joined in a single existence. Love of God and love of neighbor are now truly united. God incarnate draws us all to himself. Hold on to that point about God incarnate draws himself, all of us. Jesus, the Pope Benedict isn't talking about the, the incarnation happening 2,000 years ago. He's talking about you and me. God incarnate draws us all to himself. Indeed, when we enter into the church, we enter into the eternal church. Established before the creation of the world, she is, as the shepherd of Hermas says, she is that for which the world was established. She is, as St. Porphyrios says, the mystery of mysteries. She was concealed and was revealed in the last times. The church remains unshaken because she is re rooted in the love and wise providence of God. The three persons of the Holy Trinity constitute the eternal church. Thus, we confess that the church is one because God is one. We confess that the church is holy because God is holy. We conf confess that the church is Catholic because she has the fullness of divine life within her. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, in paragraph, paragraph 750 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, says, to believe that the church is holy and Catholic, and that she is one and apostolic, as the Nicene Creed adds, is inseparable from belief in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? What we believe about the church, we believe about the church because we believe it about God. Thus, St. Cyprian can say with confidence, extra ecclesium nola salus. Outside the church, there is no salvation because salvation, being saved, is a matter of having God's life, eternal life within us. And where God's life is found, death is destroyed and the gates of heaven are open. And we can confess with St. Cyprian that certainly there is no salvation outside the church because the church is the body of Christ, the real presence of Christ in the world. And we believe and confess that there is no salvation outside of Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Indeed, we confess that there is no salvation outside of Christ because we believe him to be the eternal word of God. And certainly we confess that there is no salvation. There is no eternal life apart from the one who exists from all eternity. Okay. This, my brothers and sisters, is the first and primary sense in which we use the word Catholic. The catechism in paragraph 830 Paragraph 830, the word Catholic means universal, 
in the sense of according to the totality or in keeping with the whole. The church is Catholic in a double sense. Hold on to this, Catholics. The church is Catholic in a double sense. First, the church is Catholic because Christ is present in her. Where there is Christ Jesus, there is the Catholic church. In her, in her subsists, hold on to that one. I got a lot of doozies here that you got to hold on to. Where there is Christ Jesus, there is the Catholic church. I'm highlighting that point in my notes because I hadn't even really gotten the juicy one there on my own when I was preparing. In her subsists the fullness of Christ's body, united with its head. This implies that she receives from him the fullness of the means of salvation, which he has willed. Correct and complete confession of faith, full sacrifice, ordained ministry in the apostolic succession. The church was in this fundamental sense Catholic on the day of Pentecost. This is also important. Where was she in Pentecost on the day of Pentecost? Not throughout the world. She was in Jerusalem. The church is Catholic because she has the fullness of God's life dwelling within her. And she has this because God is love and love seeks to share its life with the beloved. It is for this reason that the word of God became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It is for this reason that Jesus willingly went to the cross and gave his life for us. It is for this reason that Jesus called the apostles and sent them out into the world saying, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And go, they did, my brothers and sisters, out into the entire world. Open your Bibles to Acts of the Apostles, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. I'm going to start with verse 1, text you know quite well. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a, a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in, in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. There's a text that comes to us from uh, the early church, probably around the year 200. You know, remember, by the way, when you read the early, the early documents of the church, the early writings of the fathers, oftentimes when they are revealing to you something of, you know, even before they were written, it's because they were, or, the, the truth was orally passed down. And this comes to us from a document called Acts of Thomas, the Acts of St. Thomas. And it says, um, it says, at that season of Pentecost, all we, the apostles, were at Jerusalem. Simon, which is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas, the son, the brother of James. And, and we divided the, re here's the thing, we divided the regions of the world that every one of us should go unto the region that fell to him and unto the nation where unto the Lord sent him. This is super important, guys. They didn't just leave Jerusalem like mindless, you know, you know, it's kind of stupor, you know, the Holy Spirit descends upon them. They start speaking nonsensical words. No, the most ancient tradition is that on the day of Pentecost, the language, the tongue, 
not, not, not modern, you know, fall on the ground speaking in tongues business. The, the language of the people to which the apostle was to be sent was given to that apostle as a spiritual gift. Yeah. And isn't that what it says? They heard them speaking in their own language. They, God had a plan to send them to particular people. So as to implant in those particular people, the gift, the seed of faith, which had been planted in the hearts of the apostles. Okay. So now we can talk about a second sense in which we use the term Catholic in the sense of everywhere, encompassing all peoples that are called to communion. By the end of the first century, uh, we begin to see that mustard seed, which was planted in the hearts of the apostles, beginning to grow. And a great witness to this growth is um, the letter, a famous letter, that Pliny the Younger, which is a magistrate in the Roman uh, imperial court, wrote to the emperor Trajan, who had sent Pliny out to arrest any Christians, which he found. He said this, quote, for many persons of every age, this is, look guys, this is like 70 years after the resurrection. It's not that long. For many persons of every age, every rank and also both sexes are and will be endangered. Pliny was a pagan. For the contagion, speaking of Christianity, for the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to cities, but also to villages and farms. Less than a hundred years later, Tertullian gives further insight into the phenomenal growth of the church, which is now resembling more of an oak tree than a mustard seed. He says, if we wanted to play the part of an avowed enemy, should we be lacking in numbers or resources? We are but of yesterday. Yet we have filled the places you frequent, cities, villages, marketplaces, the camp itself, town councils, the palace, the senate, the forum. All we have left you is your temples. Nearly all the citizens of nearly all the cities are Christians. This is within 200 years. And again, less than 100 years later, Eusebius, writing toward the end of the third century, says, through the grace of God, the churches throughout the world enjoyed peace and the word of salvation was leading every soul from every race of man to the devout worship of God of the universe. So that now, even at Rome, many who were distinguished for wealth and family turned, wealth and family turned with all of their households and relatives unto their salvation. I'm going to pull up here for you guys a, a, a PowerPoint slide that I think uh, will help you kind of see this. And I want you to, what we're going to do right now, now some of you have printed this off. You got a pen and you've got that piece of that handout printed off. First of all, the first of all, I want you to find the city of Jerusalem, which you're going to find, you're going to see it right there, right? Two thirds, three quarters of the way over to the right-hand side, down about two thirds of the way down your page. You see it there? Put a star right there where that dot is. Make that a star for yourself or whatever you want. Circle it. I want you to also identify the Mediterranean Sea. You see Mare Internum. The, med the middle of the earth, yeah, the Mediterranean Sea. Um, let's see, uh, let, we'll do our seas first, okay? Go down there, you see the Red Sea, you see Egypt. It would have been helpful if I had put this, had a map in the you know, English language here, but nevertheless, I think we figured out Egypt, okay? And the Red Sea, you can see that with little rabbit ears there. All right, the uh, north of the Red Sea, of course, is the city of Alexandria. You'll see the headwaters of the Nile right there, boom great city of, of Alexandria, west of the Red Sea is 
uh, uh, Egypt, and of course, further further west is North Africa. Okay, if we come down the Red Sea, and it's not really on this map, but you can see a little bit of it coming down over there on the right hand side, where you see Mesopotamia. If if you were to go down this map, exactly, you see a little piece there. But if you were to go down this map, you would see then the Arabian Sea and that area in between those two seas is Arabia. You see it there, Arabia, right there. Yep, good. If you guys have your map, you're just identifying these places right now. We're going to start drawing on it in a second. All right. Up uh, north of Jerusalem is the Black Sea, Pontus Euxinus, the Black Sea. And over east of the Black Sea is the Caspian Sea, Mare Caspium, the Caspian Sea. Okay, now that's good enough. Come back to Jerusalem. You got your Jerusalem start. If you don't have it, don't worry. I'm going to draw it on this map for you because my institute staff is totally awesome and amazing. And they built this for you to see and understand, okay? Obviously from Jerusalem, Peter goes to Rome. I want you to draw a line from Jerusalem over to Rome. He doesn't go directly like that, right? He, he goes up to Antioch first and eventually over Rome, but for the sake of, of, our, of our map here, okay? Um, from Jerusalem to Rome. From Jerusalem, if you go and draw a line just kind of lower or just south of that from Jerusalem to Spain or Hispania, who went there? James the Greater, you got it? Some of you have made the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela, to the bones of St. James. James, of course, was martyred in Jerusalem, but his body was miraculously taken. You can listen to our talk on James the Greater at the ICC with Brendan McGuire. All right. Um, from Jerusalem, then to e down into Egypt. Yeah. Who goes, which apostle goes to Egypt? Mark. The establishment of the Coptic Christians in Egypt. Yes. From Jerusalem down to Arabia. James the Lesser, there you go. And this is, give, guys, this is give or take, okay? This is like, you know, they're, they're wandering around. It's like they went, stood in one spot, right? They wandered a bit and they were evangelizing, but these are the general areas that they were evangelizing. Okay, from Jerusalem um, to the kind of the bottom edge of your map, I India, the Thomas Christians, yeah? Okay, the Syro-Malabar, Syro-Malakar churches, okay? Going east from Jerusalem and just south of the tip of the Arabian Sea, uh, the Apostle Matthew. Okay. From Jerusalem, really exactly east, but we had to fit it in here. They kind of overlap um, uh, into Persia and into Iran. Simon the Zealot, commonly called a Canaanite. Um, Simon the Zealot. By the way, I'm going to stop here because I'm going to forget. If you want to listen to uh, the, the lives of the 12 apostles after the resurrection, you can go to our ICC website. I did a whole series of talks just on the lives of the apostles and the traditions of where they went and what they did and what they, the people they encountered, okay? We don't have time to do that tonight. Okay. All right. North of where Simon went, but still into Persia, uh, the apostle Nathaniel, Bartholomew, yeah? Bar Bartholomew, right? Bar is son. Ptolemy, he's the son of Ptolemy, Nathaniel. So a lot of these guys have two names or multiple, you know, variations. North in between the Caspian Sea and Black Sea, in that area that kind of zigzags, that land area that kind of zigzags through there is Armenia and Jude went up into Armenia. Okay. Andrew is our next one. St. Andrew goes north like Jude, but just to the west, the eastern side of the Black Sea. Now, some of you are going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Father. He established the church in Constantinople, Byzantium, which is that really that touch point right there from the Black Sea um, and just north of where it says Asia, right? That, that's Constantinople. But look, and these guys were moving around. 
Certainly Andrew went and established the church in Constantinople, but he ends up being martyred there on the eastern side of the Black Sea. Okay, Philip, again, goes kind of right into that area of the Black Sea, just west of, of, of St. Andrew. Um, and then further west on the peninsula east of Italy, the city of Ephesus. Who goes to Ephesus, of course? John. Do we not have Ephesus? There we go. John's there. There we go. Nice. John goes, you guys all know John goes to Ephesus, right? Um, and establishes. So, so, so you can see they were thinking, guys, when they left Jerusalem, they had a plan. Let me share with you a quote, beautiful quotation from Eusebius. He says, thus, under the influence of heavenly power and with the divine cooperation, the doctrine of the Savior, like the rays of the sun. Look at that map. Like the rays of the sun quickly illumined the whole world. And straight away, in accordance with the divine scriptures, the voice of the inspired evangelists and apostles went forth through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In every city and villages, churches were quickly established, filled with multitudes of people like a replenished threshing floor. And those, and, and those whose minds, in consequence of errors, which had descended to them from their forefathers, were fettered by the ancient disease of idolatrous superstition, were by the power of Christ operating through the teachings and the wonderful works of the disciples, set free, as it were, from the terrible masters and found a, a release from the most cruel bondage. They renounced the abhorrence of every species of demoni demoniacal polytheism. Demoniacal polytheism. You know, we got to write like that again. That's, that's good stuff. And confessed that there was only one God, the creator of all things. And him they honored with the rites of true piety through the inspired and rational worship which had been planted by our Savior among men. Look, in each one of these regions then, in each one of these cities that the apostles evangelized, there were set up churches and bishops were appointed. And here I don't mean that they built brick and mortar buildings, but rather individual churches. Communities were established that reflected the unique gift of the people who received the apostolic faith. My brothers and sisters, I can't stress how important this is enough. This is a fundamental moment in our time together this evening. The church is truly Catholic. It is truly Catholic. In as much as the mission of the apostles was a universal mission, a universal Catholic mission, so our understanding of the church must be universal and Catholic. And as long as our vision is limited to one region of the world, one culture, one way of life, we do not have a Catholic understanding of the Catholic Church. And this is not only critically important, it's also exciting to discover brothers and sisters that you didn't know before. Members of our family lost brothers and sisters and begin to discover once again how amazingly universal our church family really is. But to do this, to open our eyes to the Catholicity of the church, we need to remember a few fundamental principles. The first, the first fundamental principle is that family members are not rubber stamped replicas of one another. 
You know, families can be one, but they are made up of unique individuals. Maybe my best analogy, I think it's my best analogy, is the Thanksgiving dinner table. Uncles and aunts, brothers and sisters gather together as one family. But in reality, the one family is made up of smaller families. Look, at least in my family, I'm Italians. When Thanksgiving comes, everyone gets together. But it's a family of families. And so it is within the church. The Catholic Church is a family of families. It is a church of churches. And the individual churches what we call in ecclesiology particular churches, are not identical to one another. They are not rubber stamped like you. When the apostles left Jerusalem, they carried with them the deposit of faith. But that deposit was like a seed which needed to be planted. And plant they did. The peoples they encountered, the cultures they experienced gave rise like in fertile soil, all sorts of variations and expressions within the church, all of which were 100% orthodox, 100% faithful to the teachings of Christ, and yet expressed within varied cultures in which the apostles planted the seed of faith. Just as your Aunt Susie makes cranberry sauce very differently than your Aunt Martha, So it is in the Catholic Church. The apostles not only exported the gospel, they also incarnated the gospel. Explain me that point earlier about the incarnation of Christ, a present reality. And so it is within the church. The apostles not only exported the gospel, right? They planted that seed and it grew, it incarnate, it grew and enfleshed within people. Each people, each region, each culture in which the seed of faith was planted gave rise to a unique expression of the faith. Unique and spiritual gifts developed. Unique liturgical expressions. Unique and self-governing hierarchies. And so I'm going to give you two principles to write down. And that is that unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. And difference is not division. Quote for you from Vatican II's document on the Eastern Churches. Vatican II says, the Holy Catholic Church, which is the mystical body of Christ, is made up of the faithful who are organically united in the Holy Spirit by the same faith, the same sacraments, the same government, and who combining together into various groups, which are held together by a hierarchy, form separate churches. Between these, there exists an admirable bond of union, such that the variety within the church in no way harms her unity. Rather, it manifests in. The variety in the church actually manifests the oneness of the church. And why? Okay, Why? I go on with Vatican II. He says, what has just been said about the lawful variety that can exist in the church must also take, be taken to apply to differences in theological expression of doctrine. In the study of Revelation, East and West have followed different methods and have developed differently their understanding and confession of God's truth. It is hardly surprising, then, if from time to time one tradition has come nearer to a full appreciation of some aspect of a mystery of Revelation than another, or has expressed it to better advantage. 
And I asked the question, why? Well, wouldn't it be better if we were all exactly the same? And I answer that question with St. Thomas Aquinas, who says that no one limited thing could properly reveal God's eternal and infinite beauty. So, the Lord created variation in creation so that the variation itself, like a rainbow, could express God's transcendence. So that the variation itself might reveal the unity of the church. As I said, each people, each region, each culture in which the seed of faith was planted gave rise to a unique expressions of the faith, unique spiritual gifts, unique liturgical celebrations, unique and self-governing hierarchies. And here we need to clarify a common misconception. And this, I'm going back here for a moment to my whole uh, gr growing pains business, because this is probably, while you might be appreciating what I've shared so far, this might stretch you just a little bit. So I'm gonna pull up a slide. I'm gonna show you what is a what I would say is a common, commonly a common misconception of the structure of the church. This is how certainly among Western Christians we, uh, among Ca Roman Catholics, perceive the hierarchical structure of the church: the Pope at the top, and the bishops, and the priests, and the deacons. And this, as I say, is where we need to be begin to grow a bit our vision and understanding of the church. That's the title of the talk, Regaining a Catholic Vision of the Church. First, we're missing something or someone fundamentally important here, and that is our blessed Savior. And Jesus, obviously, is the king of the kingdom. So let's get Jesus back into our ecclesial picture. Jesus is, of course, as St. Paul says, the head of the body. He is the head of the church. And it is critical that we understand Peter's place within the family as the chief and eldest brother of the apostolic college. So I want to step back for a minute and look at this from an apostolic Christianity standpoint. Peter is the prince of the princes, if you will. But this means that he has brothers this means he has brothers. And so we're going to just lay out for you around Jesus, maybe a more complete vision of the apostolic college. And we put James, John, and Andrew because we didn't have room for all of the 12 apostles. I apologize for the, to the 12 apostles, but nevertheless, I think you get the sense. Yes, the 12 apostles formed a family of brothers of which Jesus is the eldest brother. Let's say Peter, okay, I'm going to edit that. Thank you very much. Peter is the eldest brother. While respecting and honoring and recognizing the role of Peter and that of the Pope in the church, we need to respect, honor, and recognize the role of the other apostles and their successors. And if we do not do this, then we will denigrate the church to only a part of the church. We will lose our apostolic and Catholic vision of the church. Not only were the bishops appointed by the apostles, but as the church grew, what became known as patriarchates were established in that second, third generation of Christians, overseeing and governing the particular churches, which were unified in faith, but diverse in virtually every other way. 
And my brothers and sisters, this was not late, some late development. This is the mustard seed becoming the oak tree, if you will. Again, Vatican II says the patriarchate as an institution has existed in the church in the earliest times, the earliest times, and was recognized by the first ecumenical councils. Though some of the patriarchs, patriarchates of the Eastern churches are of earlier and some of later date, nonetheless, all are equal in respect to patriarchal dignity. And this, my brothers and sisters, includes Rome. Rome is a patriarchal church. It has a father of, of its church within the Catholic church, within the bigger family. Now, I'm sure many of you are asking, I'm sure many of you are asking yourself where I'm going with all of this. Now, obviously, at this point, we need to make a distinction between what we commonly call the Orthodox churches and the Catholic church or the Catholic churches today, those in communion with Rome and those who are not, I should say, those who are not with quotation marks around them. And to this, to do this, we need to make a critical distinction regarding the communion of the churches. We can recognize in the church two important levels of communion. Just as we remember, remember earlier, um, quoting the catechism, which is quoting the Vatican II, we made a distinction between two different levels or under, understandings of the term Catholic. As, as the catechism quotes Vatican II, the church is Catholic in a double sense. And then applying this, then, this distinction to the communion of the church, first we can speak of a divine communion, huh? that in whom Jesus dwells, those in whom Jesus is made present. We can speak of a divine communion and the other something of a human communion, or, or maybe for maybe better or worse terms, a natural communion. While the so-called Orthodox churches are not in communion with the Catholic Church on a natural or human level, the level of jurisdiction, they remain in communion on a divine level, on the level of grace, which is the most important type of communion. They are members of the family, part of the Catholic Church in the most fundamental sense. And this is what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, quoting Vatican II, paragraph 1399. It says, these churches, although separated from us, yet possess true sacraments, above all apostolic succession, the priesthood, the Eucharist. As I said so many times, Jesus is not bipolar. He can't be divided against himself. Whereby, the church says, they are still joined to us in the closest intimacy. Let me just let that sink in for just a moment. In the most important and fundamental way, in the closest intimacy. And of course, that closest intimacy is the life of God, the level of grace, which makes us be who and what we are. Now, stay with me now, because it's usually at this point in the talk that people start uh, getting maybe feeling a little bit of that pressure of that growth I was talking about. Yeah. Listen to Pope Benedict. He's a good person to listen to because this next quotation I'm going to give you is going to make you stretch even further. In his book length interview, Light of the World, Pope Benedict said this, 
the Eastern churches, and here he's speaking about the Eastern Orthodox churches, are genuine particular churches, although they are not in communion with the Pope. In this sense, unity with the Pope is not constitutive for the particular church. Now, my brothers and sisters, you might be surprised that Pope Benedict said that, but now let me give you an example, which I think is going to help you understand why he said that. Explain it to you a little bit. Give you an example, and that is of my dearly beloved brother, Father Sebastian, who teaches here at the Institute of Catholic Culture quite often. Father Sebastian and I are Sicilian, which means you get kind of fired up sometimes, and we can sometimes allow a little bit, you know, the brotherly love to get kind of start to boil a little bit. And it's not uncommon, I'm sorry to say I'm a sinner. It's not uncommon that I or my brother, or most oftentimes both of us excommunicate each other. We hang up the phone and we stop calling each other and we stop emailing each other. We break the communication, the communion between us. My brothers and sisters, we are still brothers. We still have the same blood flowing through our veins. But nevertheless, we have caused a schism. We have excommunicated one another. Again, the, Catholic, the, the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, quoting Vatican II, says these churches, although separated from us, so the Orthodox churches, yet possess true sacraments, above all, apostolic succession, the priesthood and the Eucharist, whereby they're still joined to us in the closest communion. I have to go back to what I heard, read to you earlier, if I can find that quote that I highlighted for myself, which was beautiful. Where there is Christ Jesus, there, my brothers and sisters, is the Catholic Church. Now, this is where I hope you will find all of this not only challenging to preconceived notions, but I hope also super exciting. Because you have an entire family, you have a family of families that you are part of, that you may not even realize, or maybe haven't realized fully. And not only did they exist from the time of the apostles, but they exist today in a quite vibrant form. Just as Pope Francis is the living descendant of St. Peter through 2,000 years of apostolic succession, succession so within the other churches, through the laying on of hands and the rites of succession, there are other apostles, descendants of the apostles that are alive as well, heads of their particular churches, their particular family within the family. Now, I'm about to introduce you to your brother that you didn't know you had. And that, brothers and sisters, is an exciting moment in your life. You have a brother that you didn't ever know you had. And I promise I'm going to introduce you. And I said this, just as Pope Francis, the living descendant of St. Peter, 2,000 years, so the apostles and those they appointed over particular churches within the family are still alive today. They really still alive today. The patriarchs, the heads, the fathers of the particular churches within the family, the brothers, the college of the apostles is still very much alive today. I'll just show you a few. I'm going to bring up the slideshow right now. Down in Alexandria, the, you know the Coptic church. Pope Tawadros or Patriarch Tawadros. You know the word, the, 
Now, this might be, it's going to push you a little further here, guys, to stretch your minds a little bit here. You ready for this? The term pope means father. Yes? He's not the only one that uses the term father among the fathers of the particular churches. When Pope Francis writes to the guy in Alexandria, Egypt, the head of the Coptic Church, the father of the Coptic Church, well, he calls him Pope Benedict II, writes to him, Pope Tawadros, Father Tawadros, Patriarch Tawadros, okay, Jerusalem, Theophilus, I was just watching, the holy fire just descended upon the candles in the holy sepulcher, oh, it was awesome, the holy fire on, in, uh, for, the, for the feast of the resurrection, there he is, okay, the Patriarch Yusuf in Antioch, Okay, he's the father of the of the Church of Antioch, or my, where where the Melkite Greek Catholic Church comes from. Bartholomew, the Ecumenical Patriarch in Constantinople, or Byzantium. You've heard the term Byzantine before as the old title for the city of Constantinople, Byzantium. And of course, Pope Francis, Father Francis, of the Church of Rome. And around each one of these apostles, if you will, there is a family, which is self governed. And has its own spiritual patrimony, its own theological tradition, its own liturgical expression, which is not a late development in the church, and much less is, is an act of schism. But rather, but rather, it is the foundation from which Western Christianity was born. And this is super important for our ICC family, because most of our ICC family are Roman Catholics or Protestants or Western Christians. Listen to what Vatican II says. It must not be forgotten that from the beginning of the church, from the beginning, the churches of the East have had a treasury from which the Western church is drawn extensively in liturgical practice, spiritual tradition, and law. Nor must we undervalue the fact that it was from the ecumenical councils held in the East that defined the basic dogmas of the Christian faith on the Trinity, the word of God who took flesh on the Virgin Mary. Pope John Paul II in his apostolic letter, Orientale Lumen, says, since in fact we believe that the venerable and ancient tradition of the Eastern churches is an integral part of the heritage of Christ church, the first need for Catholics is to become familiar with that tradition. Familiar, guys, familiarity doesn't happen, you know, by, by just listening to Father Hezekiah. Familiarity is a matter of sitting down at the family table again. Yeah, to becoming members of a family. So here we are on Zoom. I'll do the best I can for you to familiarize ourselves over the next few minutes together, rediscovering our family of families and meeting again our brothers in Christ from whom we have been estranged. As Archbishop Zogby famously stated, we are all schismatics, all of us, all of us, in as much as we are estranged from our brother, suffer from that estrangement. And there is a rather simple way of healing that division. And that is being willing once again to meet our brother and to get to know him, to appreciate him, to love him, and ultimately to sit down again at the Thanksgiving table and begin to share a communion with him again. So for the final part of our evening tonight, we are going to spend the next 15 or 20 minutes getting familiar with your long lost brother. But, but this is worth our time. It really is. Well, I'm going to introduce you to a dear friend of mine. Now, I've never met this, this person in person, but I think you're going to love him as much as I do. His name is Sebastian. He's a bishop. He's a bishop of the Romanian, the Romanian Orthodox Church. 
He's the Bishop of Slatina. And this video I'm going to share with you is about four minutes long. I'm going to just share with you what you're seeing, what you're watching, and what you're hearing. The first is that he's going to be praying the Eucharistic prayer. You're going to recognize this. He's going to be speaking in Romanian, but it doesn't matter because you're part of the family. And ultimately, we, 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 we recognize each other's cranberry sauce. Yes? So he's going to be praying the Eucharistic prayer. He's going to be calling down the Holy Spirit, the epiclesis, as you're used to seeing in the Roman Catholic Church, the priest places hands over the gifts. So he's going to be making the sign of the cross over the Eucharistic bread and the chalice of wine. You'll notice some differences right away. Look at the bread on the discos on the golden plate. It's raised. It's not unleavened. This is a practice that goes back to the early church. It's still held in the East because Jesus is risen from the dead. You see the deacon to the bishop's right in the red vestment. See the stole over his arm. It looks different, but yeah, the basics are there. And of course, Bishop Sebastian in the middle. As I said, he's speaking Romanian, but you'll see and understand because you will see that he is certainly a member of the family. This video clip is four minutes, so sit back and just drink it in.
Sfinte Duhul Tău, Cel Sfânt peste noi, și peste aceste daruri ce sunt puse înainte, și fă adică pâinea aceasta cinstit trupul Hristosului Tău, iar ceea ce este împotirul acesta cinstit sângele Hristosului Tău, prefăcându-ne cu Duhul Tău, Cel Sfânt, să vă pomenească, Doamne, Okay, a member of the family, a believer in God. Yeah, the Bishop Sebastian. I'm going to take you now to a different part of the world. I'm take you to Syria. And Syria is very important because uh, not only is was it in Syria and Antioch, the followers of Christ were first called Christians, but because Peter went there first before he went to Rome. Peter was a Palestinian. He was a, he was a Middle Eastern guy. And the Middle Eastern culture is very different than Western culture. Very different. You're going to see something which is very much a polar opposite expression of the faith of what you just saw. Nevertheless, clearly part of the family. Clearly part of the family. What you're going to see is the entrance with the Eucharistic gifts, the bread and the wine. And notice for yourselves what is common in your experience. First of all, there's a procession. Uh, the, the gifts are veiled because they're sacred gifts. The blessing with the cross, you'll see the incense being offered. You'll see the icon of the Virgin Mary and of Jesus. I say it's very different. This is, this is to, your, to your Western ear, is going to sound totally other, and it probably will not sound nice. But it's certainly part of the family. This, this uh, again, is about, I think it's about three, just almost four minutes. It's worth our time, though. So let's go ahead. Um, and uh, and take a look at the Syrian Orthodox. <laughs>
نفسنا يسوع المسيح إلى الأب سبحانك جسدك المقدس الذي أكلناه ودمك الغافر الذي شربناه لا يا رب يكون عن لنا دينونة وانتقاما بل مغفرة للخطايا وحياة أبدية فاشفق علينا أيها الصالح وارحمنا All right, quite different than Bishop Sebastian, but clearly a Trinitarian Christian, part of the apostolic faith. The next place I want to take you to, and by the way, guys, these videos that we're sharing with you are specifically chosen to be rather dirty. They are not perfect because I want you to get the real thing rather than some made up, you know, makeup version of it. I want you to get the real thing. And so, yeah, they're a little rough, but you're getting... You're getting you're getting the the, the, the real business here. Um, we're going to go up to Russia, to a famous monastery, uh, the monastery of Optina, and um, you're going to see the abbot. You're going to see the monks, and you're there. There. Um, this is a service that is that is prayed at the very beginning of Great Lent. You enter into Lent with a service called the service of mutual forgiveness, in which each member of the community here in our parish we do the same. Uh, each member of the community goes to every single member of the community present in the church and and bows down before them, prostrates on the ground or bows as best they can and asks for forgiveness. And then we enter into Lent in this way. You'll see the monks coming up to the abbot of the monastery. Um, you'll see uh, one of the, the schema monks that is one of the higher, more, you know, really recognized for his, his, his holiness. Um, and he's fully decked out in uh, monastic attire. Uh, this this clip is just a little bit shorter, but again, this is what they're doing: asking forgiveness to one another. Armenia. Let's go to Armenia next. Um, but to go to Armenia, we're going to go to Jerusalem because the Armenians have a very strong presence in Jerusalem and in the Holy Sepulcher. Uh, what you're going to see is a procession taking place around the tomb of Christ. 
and within the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, if you haven't been there before, there's a, a church within, many churches within the church. The central church is the Edicule, the Tomb of Christ. And they're processing around the outside of the Tomb of Christ, but within the Holy Sepulchre. The, you know the Armenian genocide that took place uh, uh, 1915 and 1917, in which the Ottoman Turks massacred uh, about 1 million Armenian Christians. Uh, many of them fled, and many found themselves in Jerusalem. Have established a community there. These are this is the seminarians from the seminary there in Jerusalem, the Armenians. Okay, for the sake of time, guys, we're going to look at one last member of the family, um, and that is the St. Thomas Christians, the Malankar Church, um, the Orthodox Christians from India. Um, and what you're going to see is the consecration. Uh, and, I, and I just hope that you can see how, how quite similar, how the apostolic faith has been carried on in these places, just as it's been carried and, and, and treasured in Rome and, and, and in the lands evangelized by Rome. Members of the family, certainly. Divided from you? Yes. And both hurting from that estrangement. Yeah, the Church of India. <laughs>
Um, bring our evening. I hope you appreciated, guys, these uh, in these introductions. Um, of course, familiarity, as I said, does not happen through watching videos or listening to Father Hezekiah. Maybe this is simply an introduction, but a familiarity means encountering our brother in Christ again, getting to know who they are, beginning to love them again, and rebuild those uh, those those bridges of understanding and communion once again with those that God has placed in our life to be one, that we might express the unity of God. I'll conclude with a quotation from Pope Benedict, who said that without a doubt, a mending of the fabric of society is urgently needed in all parts of the world. But for this to come about, what is needed is to remake the fabric of the ecclesial community itself. And I would only add that to remake the, ecclesi the fabric of the ecclesial community, we must have courage to meet our brother and to learn to love him again. I am firmly convinced that the reunion of the churches will not happen on a hierarchical level without first taking place on a grassroots level. We need to regain our common taproot, which is anchored in Jerusalem and which first flowered in the Christian East. We need to re-engage with our brother from whom we have been estranged and rediscover our church as truly apostolic in origin. 100% orthodox in faith, right believing, true believing in faith, and totally Catholic in communion. And then, and only then, having healed the torn fabric of the ecclesial community, will we once again be able to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that the Lord through the apostles has commanded us. Only then will we fully realize the Lord is indeed with us and has remained with us always. Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you so much, Father. Uh, everyone, I hope you've been taking very good notes and have good questions for Father to follow up that talk because that was quite a talk. Father, I'm going to kick it off with this one. Uh, you said there are a lot of differences between the Western and Eastern churches, and we saw some of those in the videos that you showed us. Uh, what would the differences be that you say would be most surprising to Western Christians? Um, okay. Well, just to keep it on a, maybe not too, too deep, because there's, remember that, that, that one of those quotes I shared with you from, from Vatican II says there's even differences in theological insight, right? So differences in theological perspective and ways of explaining aspects of our faith, like original sin, okay? The fun foundation's there, but how it's expressed, how it's understood is, is something, and, and this is, I was, I was speaking with, with Peter earlier today, and I said, look, you know what? 
I said, most of most people look at the church as a flat, a flat triangle, like that, that um, slide I shared with you, right? A flat triangle, but the church is a mountain. Yeah. Which is three-dimensional. And, and, and we're gathered, the family, the apostolic family is gathered around that mountain. And so there's parts of the church which are seeing aspects of divine revelation that you and I can't see from where we're standing. And until we can accept that we have a limited perspective and that my brother's perspective is necessary for me to truly gain a complete understanding, until we understand that we're going we're gonna to always have an incomplete perception of divine revelation okay but that, that that okay but maybe more surprising on the surface level of things that you kind of maybe commonly would see that most of what well i mean there's there's tons of differences of course because every culture makes its thanksgiving dinner differently right um but uh but one of those things i should have done this at the beginning of our talk is the sign of the cross sign of the cross among among the eastern christians is made you can do this with me put your thumb out your right finger out your middle finger out you put those together for the trinity who are one the two natures of Christ, who are a palm, make the sign of the cross your forehead and father, all the way down to the belly button, son, and Holy Spirit to the right shoulder, right shoulder and the left. I know Father Andrew's like, oh, my hand won't go that way because I'm not using it. Exactly, I know. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, um, and this is the way, you know, as I'm going to say about a number of these differences, these were things actually shared in common, East and West, up until about the 14th, 15th century in the West, that's the way the sign of the cross was made, to the right shoulder first and then to the left. We have oh. documentation from popes teaching how to make the sign of the cross to the right shoulder and then to the left. So uh, maybe some of you are why did it change? I can we can talk about that. But sitting and standing, do you know pews didn't enter the Roman Catholic Church until about 100 years ago? You know, there was a debate at St. Peter, St. Uh, Peter's, um, uh, uh, New York, um, St. Patrick's. Yeah, you know, when they were building the, building the, the, the cardinal archbishop, that put pews in and the and the protestant architect said why are we putting pews in it's a catholic church he's all surprised well the cardinal wanted to raise money so they rented the pews out and so that's what happened but before that no before before the protestant revolt there was never christians prayed doing the liturgy liturgy is the work of the people you don't work sitting down at least you didn't in those days we stand up so when you go to an eastern church a lot of times you walk in there's no pews no chairs at least if it's traditionally set up and you stand for, for work. Okay. What are some other differences? Uh, celibacy um, in the priesthood. We have a vibrant married clergy as well as celibate clergy in the East. St. Peter was married. St. Peter was married. So we've retained that tradition for 2,000 years of both having cel celibate priests who are, are monastics in the monastery and in the parish most of the time married priests as pastors. Um, icons and statues is another one. It's a regular, right? The, the kind of but again, this is something held in common in the in in the early church of the kind of more of a of, of a what two dimensional or flat image rather than a, a three dimensional image. But both of them are are fine. But it's just more common. Oh, here's one that'll blow your mind, and that is the idea of Sunday obligation never developed in in the East. Now doesn't that doesn't mean that we don't need to go to church on Sunday, but the idea of Sunday invitation developed. You're, you're not obliged. You want to go to hell, go right ahead. But if you want to go to heaven, you respond to the invitation. And so the idea of a Sunday obligation as something which is, which is a, a legal requirement and never developed in the East. Okay. There's lots of differences. Lots of, baptism by immersion, placing the child underneath the water three times. St. Thomas Aquinas himself says this is a preferred manner of baptizing because it more perfectly shows forth the reality of what is happening. That we are dying. We are buried with Christ in baptism, as St. Paul says in Romans chapter 6. 
Teresa, you can unmute yourself. I have way too many questions, but uh, the one that I'm going to ask is, as you were talking about the seed being planted and sowed by the apostles, I'm not a wine drinker, but I've been told that wine growing in different locations, like vines growing in different locations, the grapes take on a different flavor. Not only that, but cheese tastes differently because the cow is eating different kinds of grass. Go ahead. So, so would it, would it be that, that like these seeds were planted in good soil in all of these different areas, but the fruit is going to look differently, differently. It's going to taste differently. That's exactly it, Teresa. The the church, that's about the incarnation, right? The church, the seed of faith was planted in the heart of the apostles. They went in these places. And this is, by the way, this entire talk reveals that the, 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 the stinking liberal godless media are lying to you. The church doesn't oppress people and it never has. Otherwise, the, East, the other variations within the church wouldn't exist. No, the apostles went into cultures and, peace and places and said, do you know, Teresa, the way you look, the way you speak, the way you eat, the way you dress, the way you dance, all of that is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. So start saying thank you for the gift. And that gave rise to liturgy, liturgical variation, because the way I express my thanks is different than a guy in China. We have a different life. Chow mein is different than spaghetti, yes? So don't go expect to go to Syria and meet rubber-stamped Roman Catholicism. There's nothing wrong with Roman Catholicism, but it's proper to the people of Rome and the West in which it was evangelized. Well, I take people to the Holy Land, and these are the people we meet because that's those are the people of the land. And I want to. I don't want to go to China and eat McDonald's. And godless people do that. I don't do that. No. So you want to be able to, to present. So Teresa, what you're describing is exactly right. Exactly right. The seed goes in, and because of that soil it gives rise to the plant, which is the same fundamentally. The DNA is the same, if you will. Right. The the gift, the seed of faith, is given is the same foundationally. The Holy Trinity, the devotion to the Mother of God. The love of the apostles, the saints, the Eucharistic bread, the Eucharistic wine. All oh, it's a, you know it's amazing. Every single apostolic church has the fundamental same pattern for liturgy. Father Andrew, Father Theodore, this sounds a mind blower. No cell phones, no books. And the apostles left Jerusalem and established particular churches which have liturgies which are very different and yet follow the exact same pattern. Well, virtually the exact same pattern, which means that in the upper room, when they were on retreat between the time of the Ascension and the time of Pentecost and they're leaving Jerusalem, they knew exactly how to celebrate the liturgy. They didn't go off. You know, you, we have this idea today. Oh, the pure early church with nothing. Everything was fluid. And no, they knew what they were doing and they had that together in common, which is so beautiful and amazing. Okay. Sorry, Katie. Father, this one's a bit of a tricky one and very popular, Okay, <laughs> uh, but uh, Edward and others ask, uh, in the Roman rite, we've experienced a development of liturgy, revision of liturgy that has resulted in a lot of tensions. Have the Eastern churches experienced the same revision and tension? Okay. Yes and no. And this, I'm going to use this question and I might forget what you asked me and come back and ask you again, but I'm going to use this question for another, another thing is that I didn't cover during my talk kind of intentionally was the question of the Eastern Orthodox versus Eastern Catholic churches. And it's very simple to remember this. Christ prayed for our unity, right? In the gospel of John chapter 17, if I'm not mistaken. Prayed that we would all be one, right? And so taking that to heart, 
certain members uh, have, have striven for a restoration of that unity where there has been division. So in, in all of the Eastern Orthodox churches, almost all of them, there is a both Orthodox or not juridically in communion with Rome part and a part which has restored communion. The Church of Antioch in Syria is a good example of this. The Melkite Greek Catholic Church is the ancient Church of Antioch in Syria. But there's also the Antiochian Orthodox Church. We are, we are one family, but unfortunately divided from one another on a juridical level. Liturgically, we are identical. Spiritually, we are identical. Theologically, we are identical. And in communion, unfortunately, today we're separated. I go over to the Antiochian Orthodox Church here in town. Those are my closest brothers there. And their liturgy and their church is identical to mine. Okay? So Eastern Catholic versus Eastern Orthodox. All right. Now, I told you I'd forget the question. Oh, the liturgical wars. Yes and no. To the extent that Eastern Catholic churches have, Eastern churches have, have restored communion and are living in the West, there has been a tendency of what you would call Latinization. That is, that a minority group is existing within a majority culture. And when that happens, it's really hard to retain your identity. Look at second and third generation, uh, I don't know, pick your culture, Chinese or Spaniards or wherever you are, right? Pick your culture. After two or three generations, like me, my family is Sicilian. I, I remember as a kid, members of my family that didn't speak English. Now, I not only don't speak Sicilian, I don't even speak English either. I speak Jive. And, uh, okay, that was a joke. But my, 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 point, my point is that because of we're a minority and majority culture, it's really hard to keep your identity. And so there has been among the Eastern Catholic churches a tendency to be Latinized, that is, to take on practices of Roman liturgical and spiritual practices which are foreign to orthodoxy. And so that has happened in some places. However, um, just, I would say, just as in the, in the Roman church where orthodoxy is striven for, and Father Theodore, I'm coming to you, where, where orthodoxy is striven for, where a desire for the apostolic faith is our goal, and our strength, then the liturgy is vibrant, the churches are vibrant, the vocations are vibrant. But where we tend to water down and become like everyone else, then why in the world would anybody want to join us? I don't want to join everybody else. I want the, I want the goods from the apostles. Okay, Katie, I'm cutting you on going to Father Tudor. Sorry. <laughs> uh, in response to your question about the, the, the differences in the church, uh, a good example of that would be the Indian church, the Malankara church, because you would have the original Orthodox, then you have the ones that um, joined the Catholic church uh, in the, uh, with the middle eight or the end of the first millennium, then you have the ones who joined a couple hundred years after them. And you see the difference. They're all from the same root, but the ones who joined earlier are much closer, much more Latinized than the ones who became a Catholics uh, a couple centuries after them. Mm-hmm. The only church that doesn't have an Orthodox uh, equivalent is the Maronite church. Father, uh, another question that came in. Do we similarly extend the same ecumenical perspective and brotherhood with Christian Protestants? Uh, mm. What about Catholic brothers and sisters in the Southern cultures of Africa, Latin America, and Asia, where culture has played a large role? Are we not all united in the Holy Spirit? Why the emphasis on the Orthodox churches? Very, very good, Katie. First of all, number one, we're talking about um, the importance of the faith of the apostles being handed on to us and established an apostolic succession. But when I reject that communion, when I protest that very existence, I intentionally place myself outside of that communion. Okay. 
Okay, but I want you to read the question because I had something else to say in there that as a string of points that was made in the question. Read it again. Do we similarly extend the same ecumenical perspective and brotherhood with Christian Protestants? Okay, stop right there. Catholic? So okay. I'm just going to recommend to the person asking this question, anybody interested in this question, to listen to my series of talks outside the church, there is no salvation. Because I get into, into a, 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 I think, what is a proper ecclesiology, um, primarily following uh, Cardinal Journet's theology of the church. This book's not available anymore. I just looked it up online, unfortunately. It's like 50 or 60 bucks. But um, but uh, but nevertheless, talking about why it is that the Catholic Church recognizes Protestant baptism and what happens, I shouldn't say Protestant baptism, is a bad, that's a bad use of words, Father Hezekiah. There is no such thing as a baptism into Christ, which is in protest of Christ himself. We recognize so-called Protestant baptisms as Catholic baptisms. And to the, to the extent that it is a valid baptism, it is a, is a valid baptism into the one Christ and his one body, which is the church. Oh, about because enculturation business and all that. So <laughs> let's, just, let's just say this, that as the church evangelized other cultures and exported from those centers of Christianity, the faith and influenced those people, it, tend to ex, it tended in those particular locations to also export its way of spiritual life. And so the, the, the reason why America today is Roman Catholic is because it was evangelized by the Spaniards who were evangelized by Rome. The reason why the Church of Antioch is Byzantine or Constantinopolitan today is because when the Muslims attacked Antioch, the patriarch of, of, of Antioch in Syria fled to Constantinople, learned the liturgy there, and brought it back with him when he returned home. That's why the Church of Antioch is Byzantine today. So it's a complicated, uh, complicated thing. But this is also much of the debate among enculturation that is that is that is a part of the discussion. But this is and this is important, fundamentally important, that when the apostles planted the faith in the heart of peoples, they rejected that which was not acceptable to the Christian faith. They converted the pagans and gave them Christ. And it's, a, it's fundamentally important to realize that when we evangelize other peoples to the extent that that culture can be accepted within Christianity, it is received and Christianized. But to the extent that it stands in contrast to the apostolic faith, it must be rejected and driven out because it's a lie and it's a work of the devil. And the Lord and the devil have nothing in common. Father, guys, from a, from a practical level, um, you already said that this was not going to probably happen from a hierarchical point of view. How do we, how do we engage so that we can kind of start it from grassroots? Sure. And really on a very practical level, we, we have two young women that we know who are from Russia and yeah. one goes to an Orthodox church. The other doesn't practice anything, but you know, we've been trying to figure this out. Good. Shane and Gina, it's a great, it's an excellent question. Um, and, uh, and here's what you don't want to do. You don't want to make, remake them like you. They don't have to become you in order for you to get along with them. What they have to do is be available for you to come to know and love. And in your particular case is a great example. You want to come to know their history. You want to know who they are and who they are is best expressed liturgically. So I recommend going to the liturgy, go and experience it. Now, because communion isn't fully reestablished between particular Orthodox churches and, and the Roman church today, you probably won't be able to receive Holy Communion. Um, um, nevertheless, this is important. The Roman Catholic Church, if an Orthodox Christian comes 
and approaches Holy Communion, they are to be given communion without question because of what Rome recognizes among the Eastern churches. You say, well, why won't they reciprocate that? Why won't they give me communion? I say, well, whatever the case may be, they're very careful with the Eucharist. And I can appreciate them for that. They, they, you know, there's all sorts of strange Western Christians running around out there and you're one of them. And they, you may not be all that well known to them about what you really believe about the Eucharist, about the mother of God, about the Holy Trinity. And they're being very cautious about that. And I, for one, wish that many in the West would be a little more cautious. When someone comes to communion in our church, in my church, I, 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 it's our custom of communion by, by name. And if I don't know the person or I don't have evidence that they are Catholic or Orthodox, I have to stop them. And I do. If I, if I don't see clear evidence that person is an apostolic Christian, I stop them in the communion line and I ask them, are you Catholic or Orthodox? And I make sure they are before giving them communion. Because St. Paul warns us that if you receive without recognizing the body and blood of Christ, that it will be for your downfall, not for your health, spiritual health. And out of caution and love, the church has always followed that practice. So... Uh, Shane and Gina, get ready to get familiar with your brother. Go and sit down at the Thanksgiving table with them. Learn from them. Learn to love them. So, and that goes for everyone. I'd say, you know, you see an Orthodox church down the road, pull your car over, get out and meet the priest because he's your priest too. When you do kiss his hand, that's the custom of the church, both East and West in the old ways. And goes out, Father, can I, can I, can I pray in the church? Because this is your church in your community, apostolic Christians. Can I come and pray? And you're going to see, you know what you're going to see there? You're going to see Jesus. You're going to see the mother of God. You're going to see the sanctuary lamp hanging. You say, wait a minute, this looks a lot like mine, but it's like chow mein versus spaghetti, but it's so similar. And wow, I just met a member of my family that I didn't know existed before, but it's going to take real practical effort on all of our part. Okay, maybe one or two more questions. And Katie, it's getting way too late on the East Coast. Okay, Father, how about this one? This is a popular one too. Uh, Father, thank you for sharing these examples of the family. Can you please clarify structurally the different Catholic rites and the Orthodox? Where does the Melkite rite in particular yeah. fit in I just, and okay. other rites that Roman Catholics can participate in? Okay, I just I, I kind of just said this, but I'm going to give you my, my, my classic little uh, uh, ecclesiology on your hand. God gave you ecclesiology on your hand. Father Andrew, Father Tito, I won't charge you for this one. Okay, ready? Put your hand up in a backward C. Okay, you have to be, I don't know if that looks like a backward, is that a backward C to you guys? Because sometimes the camera flips it around, Katie. Put your hand up in a backward C. Come on, everybody do it with me. See this soft part of your hand? That's the Holy Land, Jerusalem. If you come down to your knuckle or to the tip, whatever you want, Alexandria in, 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 Antioch, in, in Egypt, you're going to come north to your knuckle here, Antioch in Syria, where the Melkite church is from. Okay, that's my, where, where my church is from. Constantinople, the middle knuckle on your finger, and the tip of your finger, Rome. Those are, okay, now for our people that are highly educated in ecclesiology, I'm simplifying, I understand. But, the, but for give or take, the first, the five major families, original families, Constantinople, okay, fine, a little bit late, but nevertheless, the five original families, which form the Catholic church, okay? So you say, which ones can we go to? You can go, it, you can go to all of them. You can go and experience all of them. And then become familiar. That's what that's what John Paul II. The first thing the Catholic should do is become familiar with your brothers and sisters. Go get familiar with them. And the way you're going to do that is sit down at that things. I keep using Thanksgiving because Eucharist, same word, right? The Eucharistic table. Sit down and and experience that and appreciate that and love that and participate in that until you're familiar. You're one family again. 
And then we start to have some restoration going on. I'll give you an example of this. You know, the, or, the most of the Orthodox churches are, are on the old calendar. This year, Pascha, Easter was one week later. It was just a Sunday, one week later than the, than the, than the Catholics. So my, in, my, 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 my boys, uh, we have a connection with the Syrian Orthodox Church in town. Um, my, my boys said, Dad, can we go to Pascha? Can we go to Easter at, at uh, the Syrian Orthodox Church? And so they did. And guess what? In the homily, and Luke right there also was, yeah, was there. In the homily, in the little Syrian Orthodox Church in Sacramento, the priest who I have never met said in his homily, what was he speaking, Syriac? In his homily in Syriac, he said, and the boys are Father Hezekiah's boys, Father Hezekiah's from the Institute of Catholic Culture. So I called up this priest last night and I said, Father, we've never met. He says, but I love the Institute. You're the barbecue priest. Because you remember we do cooking, you know? You're the barbecue priest. I love the Institute. Here's, so here's a Syrian Orthodox priest and me in the same time. We don't know each other, but we get to know each other. And I invite him to my house this coming weekend because my bishop is coming to town. And, and, and there, communion begins to be reestablished because of real acts of love, real acts of communion. Okay. Thank God. you so much, yeah. Father. Thank you for tonight. I, I can say for myself, I feel like I've learned a lot. I'm sure based on the insane amount of questions we have here that we haven't been able to get to, that everyone feels like they've learned a lot. This has just been a really great evening. Um, Father, would you mind closing us in prayer? Of course. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, you who promised that when two or three are gathered in your name, you would be here among us. We ask you to be here now, sending down your Holy Spirit upon all of us, upon our particular churches, upon your entire universal Catholic church, that we might fulfill your will, that we are all one, to glorify your holy name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.